G'day mate, Forty here. So I was just listening to an article from New York Magazine on why is everything at Walgreens behind a locked door. And it's talking about the current uh, wave of shoplifting. And uh, it had the observation that every booster, so apparently a booster is someone who steals on a regular basis, then sends, sells the stolen goods to a fence to someone who then sells it usually online. And so this observation in the New York Magazine article was that every booster right, was a drug addict. So let's just say for, for argument's sake that every booster is a drug addict, then it seems like it would be appropriate to talk about shoplifting and the like, you know, primarily in terms of sick or you know, well, that uh, these people are addicts. If they weren't stealing from, from stores, then they'd be doing something else heinous to, to feed their habit. And so maybe, you know, not looking at things through the moral lens, but looking at things in terms of the you know, sick and healthy versus moral and immoral, maybe that would be appropriate. So normally I'm type of bloke who looks at shoplifting and thinks, oh, that's you know, highly immoral, that's terrible. How can anyone do that? that's immoral but maybe the psychological therapeutic 12-step approach of looking at uh, this kind of behavior as sick versus healthy maybe maybe there's something to that if that works all right my my moralistic judaic anglo heritage wants to say moral immoral but uh, if it's if it's more accurate to talk about sick and healthy, I mean, if it's more useful, if, if that's getting more down to the, to the nub of what's going on, then uh, who am I to argue against it? So, I had a good night's sleep last night. It is currently Thursday afternoon, January 19th, 2023, here in Sydney, 4.16pm, and I had a good night's sleep last night. And I want to explore the Royal National Park, which is a national park about 20 miles south of Sydney. That's about you know, an hour and a half usually by, by public transport. So many of the attractions not so easily accessible if you're just going to take public transport down there. So I wanted to get down to Otford, which is on the way to Wollongong. And uh, it's fairly close to the beach. I heard it's a you know, nice 12 kilometer walk to Burning Palm Beach. And uh, anyway, because it was raining and drizzly all morning, there was a, the electricity went out on the line. So our train had to stop at Waterfall, which is about uh, five miles short of, six miles short of Otford. So I got out there, found a trail, just started blazing trails, exploring trails. And so I got up early. I'd, I'd left the house before 7 a.m. And I was still like pumping with adrenaline. There's like a light drizzle coming down as I'm tackling the, the open trail about 9.30 a.m. And then because I had a good night's sleep, it was just kind of interesting to watch the, the trajectory of my willpower and my thinking. So it's kind of a cool day here. It's about 63 degrees here. It's about, uh, about 18, 17 degrees uh, Celsius. So as I'm blazing down this unfamiliar trail, there's absolutely no one around hiking. I hiked for two and a half hours before I saw a single person. 
And it was interesting just to see my willpower and the acuity of my thinking just like steadily drop as I became more and more fatigued. So for the first 30 to 60 minutes, I was like powered by enthusiasm, powered by their excitement, powered by the unfamiliar. Here I am exploring this national park. There's absolutely no one around. Am I going to run into a serial killer? And uh, I, sent, I sent a ping of my location to a family member so that you know, at least they'd know where to find the body. And then after about an hour of walking, right, and we're talking terrain that's up and down, it's not just you know, walking, uh, notice you know, a little fatigue starting to set in and the excitement level you know, dropping and the willpower kind of dropping and and I noticed that my thinking was no longer in enthusiasm mode. Wow, this is new and exciting and this is brave and I'm you know, blazing a new trail out of waterfall. And I had no idea that this is where I'd be today. But uh, kind of looking around and uh, you know, seeing the bars drop on my phone so I can't live stream my adventure. And uh, the bars dropping on my phone and uh, the fatigue's heading in and the willpower is dropping and dropping and dropping and so that's kind of steadily how it went through through the morning then I made, made it to a waterfall about 11 a.m. and I went to like the edge of the waterfall and I was like whoa that's a long way down and there's absolutely no one around I haven't seen anyone for, for two hours so I, I scoffed down my five protein bars and then I get I noticed like the willpower is coming back and a bit of the old enthusiasm coming back and, and the thinking's getting sharper and clearer. And then I see a suggestion to it, to another hike. It's only about three kilometers, but it's labeled hard and uh, everything's wet. All right, it's been drizzling all morning. So I'm kind of pushing my way through you know, this wet vegetation and I've been fired up by my lunch. So you always get more willpower usually after a meal. So I finally pull out my DG uh, gimbal thingy and, and start recording videos. There's not enough bars to go live. Start recording videos and I almost make it down to this uh, watering hole and I see a couple. So I stop my streaming, stop my video recording and put all my stuff away, go down to the, the water hole and there's a couple and the bloke is from El Salvador. Anyway, his parents are El Salvador. His parents and extended family came to Australia in 1989 on refugee status. And apparently there's a whole El Salvadoran community in Sydney, in the western suburbs, and in Brisbane. I didn't know it. I didn't think I'd seen an El Salvadoran or a Mexican or a Central American doing my whole two months, three weeks here in Australia. But apparently there's a whole community and he's never, says he's almost never experienced any racism or pushback. From, from Aussies. Uh, he's a gym owner. He's a gym owner and uh, his girlfriend's a, a public school teacher who teaches health. So they're a very fit couple. And uh, I, you know, they, they brought out the goodies, like they opened up like sliced oranges and grapes. And I was just like, they said they didn't want to carry it out. And then uh, went for a swim in the watering hole. So it's like, 60 degrees out, all right, it's about, you know, about 16 degrees Celsius, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, but I go for a swim in the watering hole because it's just such a classic place. 
uh, freshwater watering hole. And then as they're making their way back, apparently civilization's only about an hour away on this new direction. So they asked me, how, how fast of a walker are you? And boy, these two people were fit. I mean, I could not keep up. I mean, they were just blazing trails. But here I am back in Kuji, and uh, on the good side, right, of my stay here in Australia, you know, I haven't been paying for a hotel. Right? I've just been uh, bludging off people I know. The downside is I often have to be out of the out of the unit for like eight, ten hours at a time. So I'm waiting for the text that says that I can go back in the unit, I can warm up, I can take a hot shower can get cleaned up because I've been doing all my hiking in my in my thongs so nothing but wearing thongs for the last uh, last week or so I just really enjoy kind of the freedom my, my shoes are really worn out and so the thongs just really enjoy the, the freedom so I've been yeah hiking in thongs and it's not so bad mate not so bad it's very pleasant And it's cold here, so look, no one is out and about. So if it was a warm day, this would be absolutely filled with people because it's summer holidays. So most uh, school kids are off from about December 15th until the beginning of February. So let me know if there's like too much wind distorting the audio quality and I'll just wrap it up for today. Go on a walkabout, try to get some warmth back into me, and uh, wait for the text which says I can return to the unit, and I can return to feeling like a mensch, have that nice hot shower, haven't had a shower today, did, did go for a swim in the watering hole. I had been listening to a lot of Misha Saul podcasts, so he does the Eureka podcast, and he's got a really good Twitter account, Eastern European Jew who lives in Sydney. 32 years old, got two, three kids, really smart Jewish wife. Who's that wanted to be Jewish? Like a lot of people. And this is his conversation with with Razib Khan. So the the blogger who specializes in genetics. Here he's talking about genetics and the history of the Jews. I'll stay in Spain, and we'll get into that. Um, so they show up in the Netherlands now. Um, some of the people that went to the Netherlands, uh, they had connections actually with people in the Ottoman Empire. So. From a Chinese perspective, all right, all the Abrahamic religions must seem really similar. Oh, Jew, Christian, Muslim. Uh, do, do those distinctions mean really anything to, to the Chinese? So he says later on that the Chinese tend to assimilate uh, people while the Indians would, would put Jews in their own separate caste. But that was an interesting distinction. Chinese assimilate. Indians put people into a, a caste. Now, from, from a Jewish perspective, like as someone who's converted to Judaism, like I see all these different gradation, gradations of Jew. But even from, from a completely outside objective perspective, just knowing that someone's a Jew doesn't really necessarily tell you much. They might be secular, they might be an atheist, they might be orthodox, they might be Ashkenazi, Sephardic, and Mizrahi. And by and large, those groups don't have much in common. Right? So you go to a synagogue with with uh, Persian Jews and Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews, and they all pretty much stick to their own type. It's kind of like a prison where people divide up by race, and so too with churches, right? Churches, you got Korean, you know, Christian churches in Los Angeles and 
Filipino Christian churches and you know, West African Christian churches. So you have someone like uh, Gracia Mendez Nasi. Uh, she's uh, kind of like a she's a merchant prince of the 16th century, uh, born in Portugal, raised as a crypto Jew. She spent some time in the Netherlands and also. So crypto Jew, when people have to hide their, their Judaism, so there's a whole spate of you know anti-Jewish attacks, leaving people sometimes in a wheelchair, paralyzed. Like, Jewish kid had been so beaten down and bullied that he committed suicide. So when you have a, you know, a spate of anti-Jewish attacks, then it would make sense that uh, people would be, say, less likely to wear a yarmulke, you know, be, be less visible. But uh, during you know, safer, safer times, people were going to feel you know, more free to express their quirky you know, minority perspective. So prior to the 1960s, there was a strong pressure in Australia and in the United States to assimilate to the dominant mainstream culture. And so Jews, maybe up until the 1950s in Australia, they often didn't want to be known as Jews. They would choose every other euphemism, like uh, we're Australians of the mosaic persuasion, or uh, we're, we're Australians who just happen to you know, worship in a Hebrew temple, or uh, what are the Israelite you know, there are organizations that would rarely say Jewish. They'd be like Hebrew this or Israelite that or Mosaic this. So I'm not sure. I don't think it was the same way in the United States. But in Australia, up until about the 1960s, most Jewish organizations didn't seem to want to go down as Jewish. as like Hebrew, Mosaic, Israelite. Right? So when there's a bigger price to pay for not being mainstream, right, then people tend to start hiding. Can you hear the, the crashing of the ocean waves in the background? Can you hear the, the wind Is it distorting the audio quality? So in the Ottoman Empire. So um, these families, these Sephardic families, had networks all over the place. Um, and in much of Northwest Europe, they were the first Jewish communities. So the Sephardic Jews used to be the elite Jews. So I'm not exactly sure when the Ashkenazi Jews became the dominant Jews. I think probably 16th century. So... Maimonides was Sephardic, I believe. Rashi was Sephardic. But if you were to, to tabulate, say, the 100 most influential Jews of the past, say, rabbis of the past 300 years, probably no more than, like, two of them would be Sephardic. For the medieval expulsions. Uh, so England famously... And, it, yeah, if you were to make a list of the top 100 Jews of the past, top 100 rabbis of the past 300 years, I don't think even one would be Mizrahi. So maybe only two, such as Avadiyah Yosef, would be Sephardic. You know, 98, 99% would be Ashkenazi. Expelled their Jews, I think, in the 1250s or something. You know, a lot of this has to do with Black Death, and then also, you know, monarchs were indebted. You know that, right? That's why they... So Jews did better than average surviving the Black Death, in part because of Jewish ritual practices of washing your hands before a meal. Kick out of France, anyway. But um, the, the first Jews that, that show back, that show up in England again, I think in the 1650s, Sephardic Jews show up in London. So a lot of the early Jewish communities were um, Sephardic. So in Spain itself, there were still crypto Jewish communities. Most of them assimilated. So, you know, Montaigne, the philosopher, had partial Jewish ancestry. So until I got to UCLA at age 21, I never consciously met a Jew, but I'd worked with a Jew that I find out later in the news department at K High K Hill Radio. And so I'd probably been around other Jews, but they just never spoke about being Jewish because I grew up in these rural areas where 
they were more homogeneous, and so there was less of a celebration of multiculturalism. Yeah, like his paternal grandfather was born a Jew, something like that, or a converso family. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila also came out of a family with converso origins. Uh, they were excluded out of large sections of Spanish society, but allowed in others. Um, so the, you know, the purity of blood rules for Spanish nobility and the Spanish elite come out of the fact that there were so many conversos, and also some moriscos. There were certain times in Spanish history where it was perfectly fine to be, to be Jewish, and you know, Jews could you know mix at the highest and most elite levels, and then times change and Jews are persecuted or, or, or driven out. So there is within Christianity and Islam like a latent, you know, strongly anti-Jewish element. Because if there was an anti-Jewish element, then why would you need Christianity or Islam? All right, obviously if you're going to have a new religion that in large part grew out of Judaism, all right, you'd have to you know, sustain reasons why you're not Jewish, why you have developed something you know, beyond Judaism. So there is an inherent you know, hostility in, in Christianity in Islam, which may or may not be expressed. And so depending on circumstances, you know, that you know, anti-Jewish element can come to the fore some backgrounds uh, who are coming into Spanish society. Uh, but um, it looks like from the genetic and the genealogical evidence that a lot of these conversos... So it's kind of interesting sitting here in Australia because if I had stayed in Australia, it's highly unlikely I would have ever converted to Judaism because it's you know, much less of a, of a possibility in, in Australia because Australia has much more of a homogeneous culture. And so the idea of converting to Judaism just wouldn't be on in Australia. But in America, where we celebrate multiculturalism and diversity, and also Jews are a much more influential and larger part of American life than they are of Australian life. So we're talking Jews are, what, about 100,000, 200,000 in Australia. So we're talking about way less than 1% of the Australian population is Jewish. Well, in, in America, Jews have, have comprised up to 3% of the American population. So proportionally, there are about 20 to 30 times as many Jews in the United States as there are in Australia. So Jews have 20 to 30 times the influence and in the cultural reach, economic reach, political reach in the United States as compared to Australia. So as I just look around here and I enjoy Australia's homogeneous society, high levels of social cohesion, social trust, I also have to be kind of humbled if I'd stayed here, I probably would not have converted to Orthodox Judaism. And crypto Jews, they went disproportionately overseas because the Inquisition was weaker in the New World. Uh, it was weaker in Asia. And so this is a place where they could go for opportunities. So moving to the United States, say from England, I, it was about it was about a uh, 20, 20 to 30 day voyage. Hey, Holly, good to see you. How are you? So moving to the United States from England in, say, the, the 17th, 18th century, easier to seek status as a new Jew in L.A. than in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, much easier to convert to Judaism in the United States than... I assume it would be in Australia, it'd be kind of unthinkable in Australia. But moving to the United States from England in the 17th, 18th century, it'd take about 20 days, 25 days by sail, while sailing to Australia it would take 80 to 90 days. It's the tyranny of distance. And then when, when you started getting faster and faster ships, 
okay, it'd be the difference between five or ten days from England to New York versus you know, 40, 40 days, 50 days to, to Australia. So we're much more remote here. It's just enormous country. And so, you know, the further you have to go, right, the less likely you are, you are to do it. That's why so many more immigrants move to the United States rather than Australia. And also with conversion, you know, the, the more difficult it is, the more challenging it is, you know, the more it takes you out of your habitual ways, you know, the less likely you are to do it. So I think one reason that my conversion stuck as opposed to many comments to, to Judaism is that it's psychologically very amenable to me. I really enjoy uh, Jewish warmth, Jewish emotional openness, Jewish intensity, Jewish competitiveness. Like I really like the life of, of being Jewish. While I know for many other converts to Judaism, they get through the process and then their commitment and excitement and interest in all things Jewish starts slowly dropping off. And so usually people will convert to Judaism for reasons of marriage. And then if they, if that marriage runs into trouble, or if they divorce, then they just, you know, they just completely abandon being Jewish. So you can be married to a Jew for 20 plus years. I mean, David Brooks' second wife, right? She converted to Judaism, I think, for him. Uh, is she still a practicing Jew? Question mark. I, I don't know, but I know, you know, women who've converted to Judaism to marry a Jewish man. And then after the marriage ends and the children leave home, so after 25 years living, living as a Jew, living as a, as a traditional Orthodox Jew, they will completely walk away from it because the primary reason they did it was for the marriage and then to raise the kids in a coherent home. Then once the kids go and the marriage goes, they no longer see no sufficient reason to be Jewish. Asia. And so this is a place where they can go for opportunities because their opportunities were restricted in Spain. And I think this is actually analogous to what you would see in Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries when a lot of Ashkenazi Jews left for the West. They... So there's such a high quality of life here in Sydney. But if your burner is primarily burning on ambition, right? If you want to get away from tall poppy syndrome, you want to just be all you can be. If you really want to go for the gusto, then uh, the most ambitious Australians are very likely to move to the United States. The West, they left for America, they left for England, uh, because that's just, I mean, their opportunities were restricted. Like, they could only go so far unless they became totally Christian, right? And so um, there is a fair amount of circumstantial evidence of cultural survivals in parts of the New World, uh, in particular villages and domains, kind of out of the way, like, you know, weird places like in the mountains of Ecuador, you know? So when Jews move, say, from Poland to Germany, their Judaism changes significantly, right? It becomes more assimilated, they get more secular education, they develop better relations with the non-Jews than they suffered, say, in Poland. Uh, Jews move from Germany to England, it changes again, usually in a more assimilated direction. Uh, when Jews move from, from England then to New York, it changes again. Uh, when they then move from New York to California, it moves again. So the geography and culture that surround Jews or any minority group, Muslims too, I'm sure, are going to be profoundly affected by the geographic location and the culture in which they operate. So, you know, L.A. Jews are a very different type than, say, New York Jews, right? Much more assimilated and much less ethnic, much less religious uh, compared to New York, and New York, say, compared to you know, Eastern Europe, right, night and day.
practice, like in the mountains of Ecuador, you know, they have Sephardic Jewish practices. They didn't know it was Sephardic Jewish practices until, you know, sub- that there's no inherent reason why you cannot maintain Judaism in the mountains of Ecuador. But Judaism is one of those things that can't really practice alone. You have to be part of a community and community needs like a kosher butcher. It needs a mikvah so that married women can dip once a month and before they reunite with their husbands. You need you know, Jewish education. Okay, get away from those institutions right? and you will naturally just start assimilating. So the most traditional, the most orthodox Jews lived in Melbourne, overwhelmingly. Sydney Jews were entirely far more assimilated, far more secular. So I can listen to someone who is like driven to synagogue and then castigating other Jews for not, you know, being sufficiently rigorous about keeping kosher. So for for an orthodox synagogue in, in Los Angeles or New York, I mean, the idea of like publicly announcing that you drove there to synagogue, that just wouldn't be on because overwhelmingly orthodox Jews don't, don't drive. But Sydney is much more assimilated. But compared to Brisbane, like Sydney's traditional, right? Brisbane Jews are far more assimilated than uh, Sydney Jews. So the, the further you get from traditional community, traditional communal institutions, like the more likely you are to assimilate. Some Jewish tourists or uh, anthropologists or scholars showed up. And they're like, these are clearly Jewish practices. And then you get the DNA, and the geneticists are like, yeah, these people are about like ten to fifteen percent so far to Jewish. Like they mix with the. You write about the Colombians in that event, but there are. So people aren't also just their genetics. So you can take, you know, pure Ashkenazi genetics, transfer transfer those people to Ecuador, and uh, their, their Judaism is going to steadily diminish, and. Uh, you know, they're going to intermarry and uh, the, the genetics will be changed by the, the new culture and environment that they're in. So Falashian Jews from Ethiopia, right, they don't have any identifiable genetic markers of being Jewish, but for you know, largely political pragmatic reasons by American Jews who wanted to show to the world, see Zionism isn't racist, we just brought in 120,000 Ethiopian Jews all right, uh, Israeli Jews not so thrilled about the importation of 120,000 uh, quote-unquote, you know, Falashian Jews uh, who, who have, you know, zero genetic Jewish markers. Uh, Israeli Jews not thrilled by that importation, but American Jews were really thrilled. See, Jews aren't racist, Israel's not racist, Zionism isn't racist. We just discovered, celebrated, imported 120,000 African Jews. And... Uh, Palashian Jews haven't generally assimilated into Israeli life. They seem to have all the same problems that African Americans have in America. Right? They listen to rap music, they have high rates of crime, low rates of educational attainment, uh, very high rates of poverty, enormous rates of uh, living off government assistance, not exactly breaking academic and, and cognitive uh, records. So overwhelmingly, Palashian Jews from Ethiopia haven't assimilated into Israel, don't uh, usually marry regular, you know, Ashkenazi Israelis. So you take Ashkenazi Jews and Flushian uh, Jews, virtually nothing in common. But there, there are you know, large sweats of like rural Colombia that are like 10% Jewish or, or something like that.
When I was in um, Costa Rica, um, and I um, yeah, I went to the to the local Ashkenazi synagogue out of kind of curiosity, and it's actually a, a beautiful um, synagogue in, in San Jose. And uh, you know, I went to um, you know, to, to dinner at some of these families' homes, and um, you know, they've got very uh, you know, they're very well aware of that dynamic in Costa Rica, and they call them maranos in Costa Rica, mm. where you have these kind of. So Michael Fomento, wow, what a adventurous and torturous path that he's been on, like a downward spiral over the past 15 years he moved to Colombia and he's I think he's Jewish by genetics but he doesn't doesn't seem doesn't practice much Judaism and uh, but he went to, went to a synagogue in Colombia and uh, they someone invited him home just kind of as an obligation but he, he felt very you know disconnected from the, the Jewish community there so when people, you know, extend hospitality to you by, by obligation, you can't can't really expect any further bonds to develop from that. Crypto Jews basically go to Costa Rica and, and doing the same things. So I imagine the story is replicated across the, the Latin and the, the Latin world and, and the New World. I was just reading a, a book, Fire and Blood, by um, uh, Fernabach. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, which is a story about uh, you know, the history of Mexico, basically. And it mm-hmm. talks about the Inquisition waning, waxing and waning in terms of strength in, in Mexico, kind of depending. And there was one event with you know, some crypto Jew, Jewish noble family were a little bit too aggressive with their, you know, pro-Jewish proselytizing, and they basically burned him in the square um, and, and as a result. But that was kind of more the exception to the rule of the intent. Yeah, so if an individual's Christianity waxes or if their you know, Islamic identity waxes, then they're more likely to have negative views of outgroups. Right? And so when there was Christian fervor and there was a you know, minority Jewish you know, individual you know, celebrating their Judaism, yeah, that's not going to go over too well. I mean, you see this with, with gays who are really into their gay identity, that they have all sorts of derogatory terms for straight people. Be a lot more, lot more relaxed. I think I, I remember reading um, with the Portuguese. I was surprised at the number of um, conversos among their conquistadors as well. I think the Gama, from memory, was uh, was a Jewish convert and the like. So you're kind of seeing this um, both in terms of all the conquistadors launching and the, everyone kind of trying to find you know, a, a new home. You're seeing probably a disproportionate number of. Uh... So someone who converted to Judaism and just empathizing then with, with these uh, Jews who converted to Christianity, there is something of a sense when you convert of being homeless in two cans, right? You, you haven't like fully established yourself in your new identity, but you've largely lost your old identity. So many of the people that I grew up with, you know, they found it horrifying when I converted to Judaism and just like completely ended you know, that, that relationship. And you then step into this new world of Judaism and it will be a reflection of your psychology. So if you're like a self-doubting person, if you're an anxious person, if you you have a lot of tendencies to fear and you wonder, do I really fit in here? Does anyone like me? Does anyone care for me? Do I belong? So yeah, I've had some of that when I was going through those down periods in my thinking, you know, just express itself vis-a-vis my Jewish identity. And as as I uh, whined to my therapist one day, about synagogue, I said, you know, sometimes I sit there and wonder, does anyone, you know, care for me? And he had the greatest rejoinder. He said, well, do you, do you care for anyone there? So when I'm happy in myself and I feel like I've been going in a good direction in my life, then I naturally tend to care about other people and, you know, fear and anxiety and 
concern about my identity tend to tend to diminish. But when I'm like struggling in life, then you know the fear and the anxiety comes to the fore, and uh, caring about other people no longer seems to you know, be be a high concern. But when I when I'm happy, you know, when I'm feeling good, that I'm naturally you know, concerned about other people, and I naturally want to be helpful and generous and kind, which then helps me to connect with other people and. You know, build those identities and, and connections and you know, sense of community. So, yeah, I, I see outside of me what's going on inside of me. Uh, of converted converted Jews following the expulsion. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they went where opportunity was and where they could make the most of their talent. So, in hindsight, this all makes sense. But the- Yeah, I mean, that's true for people generally. We go where there's opportunity. We, we grow towards the sunlight. We grow towards what gives us attention, what gives us a feeling that we're doing something that we're good at. Like, why do I live stream? I feel like I'm good at it. I enjoy like the, the repartee with the with the chat. Uh, you know, otherwise I could be pumping weights right now, or you know, working on my internet commerce business, or you know, marketing. Or you know, we we do what we're good at. We grow in, in the direction of our talents. So we have genetic talents, and then we have often instigating events in life that make us realize, hey, you know, I'm really good at this, I really enjoy this, and so we just do more and more of it. So why do people do what they do? Because they're good at it, and they enjoy it, and uh, there are opportunities there. The issue is, as I think alluded to in my Sephardic piece, um, you know, some Western anthropologists in the 20th century were like, oh, well, you know, this is actually because they don't like being indigenous. And they want to, like, you know, identify a source of ancestry that's pure. So, yes. It, so, so, like, what they're saying, like, I think a lot of Jews will find this funny, that, like, some, in parts of Latin America, it's like, if you're Jewish, that means you have no indigenous or African ancestry. Or it's a status you, Yeah, you're pure with blood. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Status. Status. That's, that's like, the great driver of people that gets, the, like, the least attention in polite conversation. Like, who is going to come out and admit how much they strive for status. And who's going to come out and admit that they're choosing clothing, choosing friends, and choosing work, choosing accommodations, choosing a car, choosing hobbies, choosing books that they're reading, choosing podcasts, choosing political affiliations, newspaper magazine subscriptions, in large part based on their desire to achieve a certain status. But uh, very few people can be open and honest about how much driving a status dominates their lives. But it's an inherent part of life. You know, so, yeah, and so, and like, and that might be true. But uh, now the genetics actually does confirm that they do have Jewish ancestry. So it's not just made up, you know. Mm. So um, there was a period in the 20th century where, if you read the scholarly literature, they're like, "Oh, these are this is obviously just fabulism." Uh, partly driven by like just myth-making and mythology. And it's not just purely myth-making mythology. There's like a real kernel of deep truth there that there were disproportionate number of, of Sephardic Jewish people. That were... So what's interesting is to discover like what, what is sacred to you. you know, it may not be obvious. And so you'll, you'll find out what's sacred to you by what gets you upset. So for example, Black Lives Matter and support for Black Lives Matter, you know, that gets me upset. So this is a surfing blouse. No, I like long sleeve t-shirts so that's what this is it's a it's a long sleeve t-shirt so i i often notice you know i live in la and often it, it's a little too cool to just wear a t-shirt but it is too warm to wear a sweater so what do you wear 
when the temperature is, say, between 62 and 70 degrees. Like, I do not like being cold. Like, I would rather be a couple of degrees too warm than to be cold. So, I find, like, a long sleeve t-shirt just essential. So, when I'm working in office buildings, all right, they've got, let's say they've got the thermostat at 70 degrees or something, just wearing a dress shirt, I, I feel cold. So, a dress shirt and a very classy long sleeve t-shirt like this, I think is just the just the clothing statement I want to make to achieve, you know, the appropriate level of social status. So it's hard to find a really classy long sleeve t-shirt. Uh, a lot of them don't look good, but I, I think this is, you know, I think this is kind of, you know, kind of flattering. It, you know, demonstrates the, the tremendous physical brute strength that, that lies just underneath this uh, sheer fabric. So I think it's, sending out the right message. ...that went to the New World and were involved in the Spanish uh, and Portuguese colonial efforts. And also, you know, as I mentioned in my piece about Sephardic Jews, uh, they've been in North America, uh, you know, they've been in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, you know, but, um, uh, since 1650, you know? Okay, so when he says here, look for fishing shirts, mate. Okay, thanks for the tip. So when he says, United States of America, greatest country in the world, all right, he's not talking spiritually uh, or morally culturally is talking just in terms of brute power now, America is the most dominant country financially militarily culturally right just in terms of brute power United States has been like the greatest country in the world for many decades so United States effectively became the richest country in the world in the 1880s and it effectively became the most dominant military power in the world after 1945. Uh, culturally, America also became the most dominant cultural power after probably the 1940s. So Germany was the most dominant cultural power up until about 1932. Uh, Germany was also the dominant academic power in the world until about 1932. After the 1940s, America has been the dominant power in the world culturally and in terms of academia. Almost all the world's greatest universities are in the United States. The Dutch period, uh, Sephardic Jews have, and they were the dominant Jewish community uh, during the revolution. They're the Jewish community uh, that created the first synagogues, the George Washington Address, in terms of like, you know, praising them for their religion and their beliefs and saying that they're welcome in this country, it's a tolerant country. Uh, they were the dominant Jewish community culturally probably up until like the 1860s or 70s at the earliest. Uh, even though German Jews, you know, Jews from Europe, German, Central Europe, German Jews, because like the Eastern European Jews really didn't come until later, uh, were probably numerically dominant by the 1840s. Uh, Sephardic Jews like Emma Lazarus, who, uh, you know, wrote the poem that's associated with the Statue of Liberty, um, and then also um, David Uli, who's a senator, I believe, from Florida, and then uh, Judah P. Benjamin, I think he was... Okay, chat says paper clips might have helped. Paper clips might have helped what? What do you want me to do with the paper clips, mate? Louisiana, uh, you know, I think one of them was half Sephardic, the other one was full Sephardic. Uh, in the 1850s, uh, these are the most, you know, these are the, the first political Jews in the United States in terms of Jewish men of politics, right? And they're Sephardic Jews. Uh, and then we have Supreme Court. So when there were relatively few Jews in the United States, the Jews did not try to throw their weight around politically. All right, Jews were not uh, tremendously politically involved. But when millions of Jews came in from Eastern Europe in the late 19th century, then 
then Jews became much more politically active. So we do that which we're good at. We, we, we do that which we excel at. We, you know, we wield power when we have the power. When we don't have power, when we're just a tiny, tiny, tiny minority, then you know, we're not going to try to throw our weight around politically. Same with Muslims. When Muslims are less than 2% of the population of a country, they're not, they don't tend to be politically active or politically disruptive. But as the percentage of the population climbs, then, then these minority groups start becoming much more assertive. So there's never been a country where Jews comprise, say, 5% of the population or more, where the country just hasn't been torn into by uh, quote-unquote anti-Semitism or just simply group conflict. Because when Jews can comprise, say, 5% or more of a population, then they can effectively form a nation within a nation. So too with Muslims. Whenever Muslims attain 5% or more of a given population, then there's tremendous cultural conflict because Muslims then form a nation within a nation and they become increasingly assertive. So tiny you know, defenseless group does not tend to be assertive. But when you have a growing group that starts to dominate whole communities, right, it will become much more assertive and distinctive. And of politics, right? And they're so far to Jews. Uh, then we have Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Cardoso in the 20th century. Uh, we think in the United States of like, you know, Jews and Judaism as like Germany, Poland, Russia, Eastern Europe, and that's demographically true. But Sephardic Jews were here early, and the further back you go, the more they are a thing in terms of like the history of Jews in the United States. It's um, it's funny, just in the way earlier we... So almost all high-achieving Jews are Ashkenazi. It's just overwhelming. It's like, if you take, say, the most influential, the most famous, the highest achieving, the richest 100 Jews of the 20th century, you'd find that 98% would be Ashkenazi. And just in the way earlier we, we talked about kind of Sephardi Jews um, going to Morocco and absorbing the ancient Jews of, of Morocco in a similar way, you've kind of got a story about Sephardi Jews being on the ascendancy in, say, New York and, and, and the US, and then the Ashkenazim coming in and kind of just culturally, um, you know, dominating. You've seen this waxing and waning across the across the world in different, and, and so that's not a uniform story. So what I find really interesting about your your pieces, um, you know, a lot of Jewish um, ascendancy is basically basically comes down to hitching, you know, the wagon. What's the translation of which word, mate? Which word do you want translated? To an ascendant um, uh, peoples at the time. So they ascended with the Ottomans, and then, you know, the, the, the kind of um, Ottoman Jews descended with the Ottoman kind of empire, yeah. and then yeah. um, Jews happened to be um, in uh, you know, in Brazil, and they made their way to New Amsterdam, and now New York, and happened to kind of arise with, it, with an ascendant U.S., and then it kind of works the other way, where you've got, um, you know, forgotten Jewish communities that basically disappeared in, in the East because they, they failed to kind of... Um, you know, ride those currents. And so, do you want to kind of uh, paint a picture of, of that—the kind of ascendancy and then the kind of disappearance of various Jewish communities, which, sure. which are kind of which people don't focus on as much? Yeah. Well, I mean, so for example, in the Islamic world obviously had a lot of Jews before 19, 1956. I think uh, you know, like a lot of the expulsions date to the, to the 50s, you know, and whatnot. Um, so these Jewish communities, uh, for you know, before. Probably, I mean, before 1500, almost certainly the majority of the Jews in the world lived in either Spain or the Islamic world, the vast majority, right? Uh, so these were communities that had a certain status, and they also, as I said earlier, so they served as go-betweens up until about like 1,000 AD or so. There's this Radonite Jewish community that was probably originally based out of Persia. Yeah, I'm thinking about Nathan Kofnitz's default hypothesis used to explain Jewish influence. 
that uh, much of it's high average Jewish IQ, part of it is geography, uh, part of it perhaps is a particular temperament that there are certain personality types that are more likely to achieve success in the world. And then I think a large part of Jewish influence would be that they're located in the United States. So the United States is the dominant great power in the world. And so Jews in the United States, they are, they are going to punch above their weight in terms of you know, world cultural economic uh, influence because they're part of the most powerful nation in the world. So Jews are particularly concentrated in New York City, which is I often hear talked about as the greatest city in the world. So if you're a large, substantial part of the greatest city in the world, you're very likely to punch above your weight in terms of economic, cultural, and political influence. Persia, um, their trade networks went all the way from Italy into China. Um, and so, you know, during the period, the high tide of Islam, uh, Jews were, you know, we would call them a subaltern community, but they had a role. And as Dimis, they were protected even once if they paid tax. And so obviously they were subject to periodic persecution, but in general they were tolerated. And they used that toleration to their you know, benefit. Um, whereas you know Europe in the early Middle Ages, the late Dark Ages, let's say between like 750 and 1100 or so, was kind of a backwater. Like. So Ashkenazi Jews really only developed in the past thousand years. So we don't have any evidence of like Ashkenazi Jews 2,000 years ago. But uh, I think the most recent theories is that uh, some Jewish traders move from Iraq to Italy and then they, they reproduce with Italian women and and then they moved north into Germany. So Ashkenazi means I think from from Germany that, that's that's the like the origins but uh, they, they only came to to prominence starting in about the 13th century and by by the 15th century, the majority of Ashkenazi Jews, which were in Europe, were earning their living via white-collar means, which is absolutely extraordinary. A hundred or so was kind of a backwater. Like, Ashkenazi Jews, they were doing their thing, but really, uh, they're only important in hindsight. You know, Rashi's... He's brilliant, but if uh, the Ashkenazim had not become like 80, 90% of the world's Jewry by the 20th century, I don't think Rashi would be as important, you know, honestly, uh, as compared to some other rabbis. What's fascinating that... Oh, whoops, uh, maybe uh, Rashi was Ashkenazi, not Sephardic, sorry. That Rambam, you know, Maimonides, is a towering figure in Judaism, obviously, and he's Sephardi, um, and he, and so, um, which, which I didn't fully appreciate, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. So, Jewish descent used to be patrilineal through the father in ancient times and then in all the chaos around 2000 years ago with the Romans the two wars with the Romans a lot of Jewish women got raped and so the Talmudic rabbis changed Jewish descent to matrilineal but uh, apparently 2500 3000 years ago it was patrilineal then during times of, of rape mass rape of Jewish women uh, Jewish descent was changed to matrilineal through, through the mother so you're Jewish if you're born of a Jewish mother or if you convert through an established Orthodox Jewish law court, which is what I did.
Yeah, yeah, and so he he was you know his whole his whole life story was about decline also. So, you know, uh, the, the Sephardic um, Golden Age, you know, uh, the ornament of the world, uh, actually was you know earlier. It wasn't it wasn't in 1492. Like by then, um, there'd always already been waves of mass persecution and mass forced conversions a century earlier. Uh, the Jewish community of 1492 was rump was a rump community. Um, a lot of people were already conversos, were already like you know descended from Jews. And- so I often get the question, what does Judaism say about X? And Judaism says so many different things about X. Okay, so certain time period it was just patrilineal descent, and then a different time period is matrilineal descent. Then we get the rise of Reform Judaism in the past 200 years, which, uh, which uh, went back to either patrilineal or matrilineal descent. So if either of your parents is Jewish, then you're Jewish is according to the reform conception. So like doctrine of the Messiah, you know, all sorts of different uh, you know, perspectives within the Jewish tradition. Uh, have Jews produced a systematic theology like the Protestants? So Judaism was approximately 3,000 years old before it produced its first work of systematic theology, which was the 13 principles of the Jewish faith according to Maimonides. So Christians were already killing each other <laughs> over systematic theology in the, in the first uh, 200 years. So right from the birth of Christianity, they were producing systematic theology uh, in the first 300 years of Christianity, like all sorts of different creeds. Like Judaism was approximately 3,000 years old before it produced a systematic theology, and then it's largely been ignored, right? Jews almost never talk about theology. It's not an important issue. Uh, a lot of Jews thought, you know, who the hell is Maimonides to come up with a you know, code of Jewish belief? Uh, so systematic theology plays virtually you know, no important role in Judaism. So there are various rabbis who have propounded systematic theological concepts. Uh, just doesn't hold any weight how Judaism is practiced. So, when Christians talk about God, they talk about it, God in terms of systematic theology. When Jews talk about God, they'll talk about God in terms of stories. And, you know, it's really, really brilliant phase uh, was near the end of the Umayyad Caliphate of Spain of the 900s into 1000s. There are some persecutions of some of the Taifa states, these Islamic principalities. But one thing about, like, you know, political fragmentation is there's opportunities for groups like Jews that are escaping persecution. Because there's always, like, some place that will, like, take you, right? And so there's a period of philosophical inquiry, engagement with the outside world. Um, so that's one thing about the Sephardic Jews. That- uh, no, there's not always a place that someone will take you, <laughs> such as during the 1930s, right? There, there are countries that are throwing Jews out. In their countries that said, you know, we don't want, we don't want Jews, or only a very limited number. So no, there's not always another country that will welcome you. Just like you can get fired from a job, and uh, it may take quite a while before you, you know, find your feet in a new employment. So that's one thing about the Sephardi Jews that's notable is for a period of several centuries, they were engaged with the outside world, they were engaged with Muslims, with Christians in these Islamic states, and so they were. So during periods where the outside world is friendly and amenable to Jews, Jews are going to be much more likely to engage with the outside world. When the outside world is hateful towards Jews, Jews will turn within. And so they were part of the culture of Iberia, as opposed to simply like a sealed-off ghetto culture, which, to be frank, is what the Ashkenazi were for most of their history in Northern Europe. And so someone like Maimonides, uh, he introduced Aristotelian thought, you know, into the mainstream of Jewish thought um, and theology, and that's because he himself was educated as a man of the world and not just a Jew. You know, he was he was a child of Alan. 
Okay, the unit is open. I can go take a hot shower and feel like a mensch again. Bye-bye.